0: Hi, I'm Adrian. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, a writer, a blogger, and scholar, auntie, living in what is currently known as Rhode Island. And I'm
1: Matika. I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip peoples, and I'm a photographer and a doer of many, many things there's a lot happening in the world right now. We're still
0: in a global pandemic and winter is coming. (laughs) But today and for the next three episodes, we want to take you back to January of 2020 and tell you a story that we think is really important. This is a story about land, about culture and about connections to place.
1: And it's a good story. Last January, our whole team got on the plane. Uh, I got on the plane with Alma B. She was just eight weeks old. It was her first plane trip. And we went to Hawaii. And Hawaii was like you just like you imagine it to be it was sunny and warm and it smelled good and it felt good and we did all the Hawaii things that you do when you go to Hawaii you know like eating spam musubi from the ABC store where we got our slippers (laughs) and you know we went to the beach and we were just you know having a fun little time together like in real life in person (laughs) and um the truth is though that's not why we were there <laughs> and that's not what this story is about <laughs> this is the story of the movement to protect Mauna Awakea and Hawaii is not our vacation land Hawaii is the homeland of the Kanaka people right now they are fighting to protect one of their most sacred sites and that's why we flew all the way across the ocean because we felt like it was essential to make the trip, to talk one-on-one with the activists and elders who are dedicating their lives to the movement. So let me set the scene for you. You know, you were like, we're in Hawaii. We're on this really warm, tropical place. And then we drove up to the Mauna to Puhuluhulu, the resistance camp. And as we were driving up, the weather started to change. It was suddenly cold. The mist was thick. And we arrived during evening protocol to see folks doing their Oli in jackets and bare feet and I got this sudden feeling that I was um, in a sacred place and that I needed to be respectful and that I needed to follow the protocol of that place and you know we we sort of arrived like hoping that we would get to meet people, but we didn't really know who we were going to meet. <laughs> you know? And I feel like we got really lucky to talk with a number of really amazing, powerful folks who shared story with us. And we were actually able to visit the Kapuna tent and talk story with a bunch of elders. And they really shared amazing stories with us.
0: It felt really important to be in that tent with everyone and hearing all of the stories and grounding of why we were there. And it brought me back to Standing Rock in a lot of ways. And it's it's not often that we get to be in the center of a movement like that. One of the amazing people that we got to talk with was Auntie Noe Wong Wilson, one of the kapuna or elders of the movement a professor, educator, cultural practitioner, and Native rights activist. She's a lifelong protector of the aina, the land. She is so well-respected in the community that her voice and knowledge on the movement is requested by media, policymakers, visitors, and in courtrooms. And she was so generous with her time with us. We interviewed her in our mobile minivan studio as the rain poured down outside just minutes before she had to head to the airport to fly to Oahu for meetings and direct actions. She told us the power of the land where we sat.
2: Aina, land, is an inseparable part of our identity as Hawaiians. And along with the land comes the spirituality because these things, these inanimate things that cannot be produced by a human are what we call the gods. So we revere the very rocks we walk on, the very rocks that are standing. And there's no sense of I or me in the Hawaiian culture. You know, our smallest unit is the ohana or the family. And, and we are just part of that whole and that family is defined however the family is defined. It's not necessarily a Western nuclear family concept. Land is, is inseparable from us. People who have Hawaiian blood, who were born away from the islands for several reasons, different reasons, or who have to move away, um, most times for economic reasons, have this inseparable relationship with the land, and when they're away, they yearn for it in ways that are indescribable for them. They, they feel um, the tug and the pull of this particular land, which is called Hawaii, these series of little islands. Um, and it is, um, it is in a way that any native people, I guess, feels for their own land um, when they're removed from it. And so to see it abused in this way is painful to the soul. It's painful to our native soul. Yeah, and that's why we stand. Sorry. (laughs)
1: Let's begin this story with Lanakila Mangual, who helps us to understand what this movement is all about.
3: Aloha, my name is Lanakila Mangual, or Joshua Lanaquila Oka'aina um, Kapono Pono I'm born and raised on the north side of Hawaii Island in a small town called Honoka'a. I'm, um, I'm a unique a generation that was blessed to be able to grow up in a time coming out of the results of the Hawaiian Renaissance Movement, and I've been an educator uh, teaching um, in our Hawaii school system and community and internationally for over 10 years now, and have been active in this particular movement uh, since about 2013. And kind of became a little bit more synonymous as a leadership, um, starting in 2014, and kind of initiated this this step of um, uh, direct action in the protection of the mountain. There's a, a number of different components to the foundation of why we are standing to protect this mountain. Um, on one level. For us as indigenous peoples um, here, Mauna Awakea uh, is our most sacred mountain. It is the tallest mountain on earth from the sea floor to its summit. And for us, it's part of our genesis stories, our creation stories. It was the first child born of Papahanamoku and Waakea, which is the, the, the earth mother and the sky father. Um, and this was their, their first um, child that was born and then the siblings, uh, the younger siblings of the islands themselves continued to emerge forth and eventually also the sibling who is uh, the star mother um, she is the, the next who then birthed the kanaka, the human and was brought here to the earth and so we see the mountain as the eldest of all of our siblings. As the hiapo or the eldest child, it does all this work to gather the nutrients and to feed down to all of us younger siblings and we maintain that relationship it's also very sacred to us as being one of the highest points in all of Oceania it is a burial ground especially for a lot of our higher our high chiefs uh, high priests and particular families that are related to the deities of this mountain they are for generations upon generations the bones of ancestors are laid to rest on this mountain it's a tradition of our people too that we don't we don't mark graves. They are hidden away. The fact that when you look and you don't see stone, stone heads or markers does not mean that they're not there. It's, it's a tradition to hide the bones. So there's a burial ground to elevate our, our Kuponara our ancestors, into the heavens. It's also very symbolic for us because we see the mountain also as a pico, which is uh, an umbilical. The mountain is the umbilical of this honua, of this planet, that stretches into the uli kalani, and the, the uli kalani or the the black of space is is the placenta, and we, the imagery of that is that the mountain um, channels all this this. Uh, mana of the universe and to come down through it, and it uh, shares it for the growing embryo, which is this earth. Um, so the image of of all yeah. these things being built in this area is 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 we see it almost like cancer in within the the umbilical cord. In that practice, it's also a tradition of our people to bring the umbilicals of our babies to the mountain. Um, we come. Uh, particular families um, and particular and those who want to connect with the mountain um, when the umbilical falls off of our babies that has come and laid to rest on the mountain too so that we have a spiritual tether to this place and so um, it's a practice of our people that no matter where we go in life we, if we know the origin where our pico lies we have the spiritual umbilical cord that grounds us to these places that we can draw mana from also it is where the god of life the sustainer of life which we refer to as kane nuya where Kane bared and had his sacred children the sacred daughters of Kane are Lilinoi, Waiau, Kahupuakane, and Poliahu. They are the four primary maidens of the mountain. Their kinoa or their physical manifestations is uh, Lilinoi is the mists and the fog bodies of the mountain. Wayau is the lake, Lake Wayau that sits high at the summit. Uh, Kahupuakane is the subterranean waters and the thunderstorms. And Poliahu is the draping snows of the mountain. Um, and in that, we, see, we recognize they are the hydrology of this mountain. And so Mauna Kea is actually also registered as and as well as Mauna Loa, they're both registered ice mountains. Within the core of the mountains, it's permafrost, and that's what helps to hold the lake up there. And what also has been from the ice age gives us these artesian wells. Um, that 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 permeate down and feed into all the springs all over in the lowlands so from even my side of the island all the way down to the 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 white sandy shores here on the west side and all those hotels area all that the springs it's all coming from this mountain Mm -hmm. um so it's very very critical to the aquifer here so in the tradition of our of our people it was very very seldom that anybody ever came up into this and up onto the mountain particularly to the to the top to the summit um it's what we refer to as Vau or the realm reserved for the gods so it's only on very 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 important occasions would a chief or an ali'i actually ascend to the summit and the protocols and the discipline and the demand of that was was extreme um so that the main protocol that we all observed was really to stay off of the mountain. So it wasn't a very regularly visited area. There's only one thing that we technically gathered from the mountain and there's only one or two places on the mountain and that's uh, where we had the koi or the ads, uh, the, st- the the basalt stone quarries. Um, and they're very small areas and there's only two points that we gathered and they're uh, further down the slope. So the basic foundation is that we did not go into this area because we also understood the uniqueness and the fragility of this place, mm-hmm. the ecosystem here, which in turn is the deities that we speak of too. Um, the need to make sure to maintain the purity. In the stories, it is spoken that Polyahu, who is the youngest daughter and the most divine of Kane, um, the kapu or the mandate was to maintain her purity to maintain her virginity because she is also she was the oracle of Hawaii in, in the stories it speaks of it that way that the mountain was forbidden because Poliahu was the, the highest maiden and no mortal could touch her but in translation of that we're understanding that those particular water bodies um, the waters of the mountain were to remain pure which is also the foundation of what the word kea means when we say mauna kea so people say white mountain but Kea is not just a color white. It's about, it's a, it, it's a gleaming untainted white mm-hmm. because the root of Kea is purity. So we left this area as untainted and, uh, and pure because that's the highest waters. And so everything that flows down from that would, would maintain that. And now we can back this all up with also paralleling that with modern science understanding of the, you know, the Mauna Kea is considered a high alpine desert ecosystem at its summit and there's a very very unique species of plants and animals it, it goes along with this the evolution of the Hawaiian islands and when it comes to endemic species and such too you know the isolation of our islands have created such diversity and evolution of plants and animals so even unique to this mountain are some species that can be found nowhere else on earth not even on, these, on our, our like Mauna Loa yeah. They, they've evolved into their own unique species so their space is very limited too, especially on the summits where we are fa- facing all of this encroachment of development The s- certain species of insects and fauna up there are, are severely threatened because they already are very scarce just in the landscape there's only so much acreage up there mm-hmm. that can sustain these life forms and that's exactly what they're trying to intrude into with previous telescope constructions on the mountain they've they've Decimated so much of the ecosystems. It's even noted in a lot of the the EISs that they've that they've done prior of how destructive the construction and and development have there has been to the ecosystem. We're technically trying to uphold the law here, because even under under the U.S. occupation to under this the state of Hawaii, Mauna Kea is actually also held as conservation lands, and. It's been a bunch of corruption from back in the sixties that has kind of just kind of circumnavigated these laws and and softened down the impacts in the language of laws to to make it as if these astronomical construction projects are not uh, or that they're doing everything possible to to mitigate and to to soften the impact but it's the the data shows right there and and an open eye shows you right up there how destructive it has been so really at this particular time it is a matter of stopping any further development upholding law because this is if anything within the U.S. system the the rules of conservation fall directly in line with our traditional practices of the mountain as well mm-hmm. so in that um, I always try to bring people back to reminding that that's the foundation where we stand um, it's, it's for me first and foremost it's an environmental movement it's the health of our natural environment that is crucial to our cultural rights and our, and our rights as indigenous peoples. It's not quite our rights first so take care of land. It's like, no, we got to take care of land because with, without the land we have no culture. Mm. Our culture cannot exist without these places. But environmental, protection of water, protection of natural habitats, protection of sacred sites and cultural practices, we get caught up in What's happening right off here so the these conflicts with the state and and the county because of obstruction of roadways and da, da, we get so lost in that sometimes that we forget the root of why we're here for many of us it is our goal to see this project stopped you know no more further um, development on the mountain that's really where we're putting our foot down there's already 13 existing telescopes on the mountain there's about 24 structures altogether and about 10 miles worth of, of roadway. Um, that was been carved onto the mountain, and at the summit, asphalt and all these different types of things there's been massive um, power lines embedded into the mountain as well too so there 's a lot of cumulative impact as well as the opening of this mountain uh, as a public road that now opens the way for tourism heavy impact of of a, um, nearly there 's nearly uh, in count between between five hundred to a thousand vehicles or a thousand people coming up this mountain every single day. Mm. And that happens on the daily unless of course there's a winter storm or something. Um, but it's unbelievable how much traffic comes up here and there really is very little to any management um, of them up there so they get up there and they just walk all about and there's the uh, the University of Hawaii is actually who has the lease of this mountain and they are the ones who have basically done nothing for the conservation effort and just opened up this mountain for tourism and astronomy Um, and so we are just kind of in the, the resurgence of our people coming back and reclaiming this place and for our right to protect this place as it needs to be both for culturally spiritually and environmentally
1: In order to fully understand the history of this movement, we really need to understand the history of Hawaii. And to get the full story, we talked with Dr. Keanu Sai, who talked with us for, you know, hours. (laughs) And he gave us the whole history of the Hawaiian kingdom. And you will hear from him in the next episode. But to get to the immediate context, we talked with Jamaica Osorio, who tells us the history of Hawaii. Can I just
0: talk about Jamaica for a second? So she is an incredible and accomplished poet and also now a scholar at the University of Hawaii, where she studies the intersections of queer theory and Hawaiian mo'oleo or traditional stories. And it's just like so amazing to me to hear her and see her now and see how much she's accomplished because I first met her when she was a high schooler and she came to College Horizons. And we were already blown away by her power then and just could not even believe how amazing she was uh, when she was that young. And then she applied to Stanford when I was the native recruiter in the admission office. So I was the one who got to read her application and send her the admissions letter. And she came to Stanford for undergrad. So now to see her as a fully grown scholar and activist is just
1: beautiful. Let's jump right in.
4: Jamaica Osorio. My name is Jamaica Osorio. I uh, was born and raised on the island of Oahu, uh, in the Ahupua of Waikiki, in the Ili of Paolo. Um, my parents, John and Mary Osorio, they met. God, with my dad, when my mom was like in her twenties. Um, but I spent almost my entire life on Oahu living in town. Uh, now I live in Kailua and Pakui, just on the, on the foot of Olomana, some people call them the Three Peaks. Um, in 1778, Captain Cook arrived in Hawaii. When he came, there was a flourishing and civilized collective of people who were living and working and growing and making art together. Um, we weren't without our problems, but we existed quite fruitfully with his arrival came the introduction of a host of diseases that we didn't have immunities for and it began this sharp and steady collapse of our population and i don't think we actually talk about the collapse Mm -hmm. of our population enough and its devastation really in in terms of our culture our practice um and our understanding of like history and politics and how all those things shifted um so we go from being about a million people in 1778 to about yeah. 33,000 people in Damn. 1893. So just decimated. But Keanu Sai will tell you in that time, we also developed our own constitution and a kingdom and we were recognized by the League of Nations. Um, and so we had, you know, a recognized, <laughs> whatever the hell that means, nation state on the, in, in the international arena. Um, in 1820, our homies from the... Uh, ABCFM, the American Board of Foreign Missions or something, if those are all the right letters, they came and they sent their missionaries to teach us about Yesu and Yehovah and really started transforming the way we relate together, re- relate to each other and to our land. I think of that as a really critical moment in terms of our culture and our past. Um, going from practicing multiple vibrant a diversity of relationships into really being Kind of push through the institution of marriage and monogamy to kind of reorganize our entire political and home structure to fit more neatly into, like, an American Western society. In 1893, there was a, quote, revolution staged by a small group of American businessmen called the Committee of Safety, where they overthrew our queen. They propped up their own fake government called the Provisional Government, and then they started to liaison with the United States to annex Hawaii. That was always the plan. Uh, They didn't want to be their own country. They wanted to be a part of the United States, mostly uh, to support in their own business ventures. But the United States didn't have the votes for an annexation. And I'm sure Kelly <laughs> yes. went into great detail about how this worked out. But essentially what happens is they create this new BS kind of um, way of usurping a country. Um, and they write a joint resolution. It's called the Newlands Resolution. Because a joint resolution is a piece of domestic law that doesn't require a three-fourths majority in the Senate. And there are lots of reasons they didn't have all the votes. Sugar growers in the South didn't want Hawaii to become a state because it would compete with their business. Uh, there were also a lot of people in the United States who were like, what are we going to do with all those mm. Asians and brown peoples? They're just going to become <laughs> Americans. Like we already have our own black and brown problem in America. We can't just bring a whole bunch of other brown people and call them citizens. So it's not like we had a lot of real friends in America who mm. like wanted us to be sovereign. They really just didn't want to deal with the brown problem is my understanding for the most part. So they didn't have the votes. So they create this guise of an annexation, and they, quote, annex Hawaii in 1893. Uh, We remained a territory from 1893 until 1959, when they staged a vote for statehood. Um, Again, the folks who study our kingdom history will remind us that because all of that was You know, violently illegal on, in all, in all senses of international and American law, we remain an illegally occupied nation state. Um, and America, it's a military occupation and America essentially needs to leave Mm -hmm. in order to follow its own laws. Um, but we all know how America does with their own laws. I'm not really a scholar of this period, but I kind of imagine the period between like the early, between World War II and, and the Hawaiian renaissance as this like mm-hmm. this deep mm-hmm. period of mourning and grief and I mean even if we look we go back even further and say like the early 1900s to 1960s just like Hawaiians really struggling with this question of are we going to be American are we going to mm-hmm. assimilate how do we prepare our children and our grandchildren to succeed and live you know, generative lives in this future? Um, How are we gonna deal with the fact that we're constantly being devalued for all things Hawaiian are not valuable? My grandfather's generation is really characterized by, Mm. I think, that deep period of mourning. Many of them didn't learn how to speak Hawaiian. Many of them did not practice their Hawaiian traditions, with the exception of a few things, like music remained really powerful Mm. throughout my grandfather's generation. Um, My grandfather knew hundreds of old Hawaiian songs So there are some things that you were allowed to practice that were still valuable, that were still beautiful enough that we could do and still become Americans. And then my father's generation started to come of age. And my dad writes about this a little. The defining war of my grandfather's generation was World War II. And the way my father imagines it, World War II really kind of, in a lot of ways, galvanized an American identity and brought people even people of color, right? And in Hawaii, like brought people to understand themselves as American. And especially in Hawaii, where we were attacked, that there was this kind of camaraderie that was developed. Like we were attacked too, we will band together, we will protect our country. Well, my father's defining war of his generation was Vietnam and it had a very different effect on his generation and a more dissociative effect. And I think Vietnam coupled with the growing... Kind of activism in the United States around American Indian rights and uh, the Civil Rights Movement really started to light a fire under a lot of Hawaiians in terms of Hawaiian rights and sovereignty. In fact, a few Hawaiians in that time went mm-hmm. to go study from the Black Panthers and learned all this amazing stuff about nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience and came back and brought that work back to Hawaii and we are really living as the legacy of that work of the early 1970s folks who fought to protect Ko'olave uh, who mm-hmm. fought evictions in Kalama Valley or fought evictions all around the islands so while all this is happening the kind of growing it becomes less and less of a bad word to call yourself an activist I guess in the 90s um in the late 80s the first telescope goes up on Mauna Kea Uh, it goes up without permission without consent Mm. without permits Um, they get permits after the fact and that's kind of like that's like the genesis to this story of of um, telescopes or scientific advancement and Mauna Kea specifically I mean we can tell a much bigger story about the way that development has mm-hmm. really really ravished hawaii um but if we want to talk about why do hawaiians not trust scientists why do hawaiians not try uh trust mm-hmm. 21st century scientists and the development of mauna kea we can begin with the 1980s and building of telescopes without permits all of the first few permits got all of the first few telescopes got permits after the fact and then it was just one after the other after the other eventually the state of hawaii does an audit and dem- and clearly demonstrates that the mountain has been completely mismanaged on a environmental and ecological standpoint. And then if you put the whole like cultural rights thing on top of it, it's just an entire travesty about 10. Oh God. Maybe it's like 11 years ago now. um, In 2008 or 2009 um, the 30 meter telescope was uh, proposed for Mauna Awakea and it was immediately met with opposition and I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is that people have been fighting telescopes on that mountain Mm -hmm. really since the 1980s. But specifically this telescope Mm -hmm. for 10 years, Um, they've showed up in court, they've showed up on the mountain. um, And time and time again, the state of Hawaii kind of just makes up its own rules and brings their bulldozers and brings their TMT's private security, also known as Mm -hmm. the police department or Docare care whoever else you want to talk about and a lot of this came to a head in 2014 and 2015 when a few people from my generation ascended the mountain and they stopped the groundbreaking ceremony
3: Come <laughs> was to have ceremony down here at the bottom of the mountain and when all the dignitaries and and representatives came up to do their stuff they would see us that our people are still here but first a few of us young guys that are like i don't know if i can do that if i can just sit here and watch these guys drive by me so um really there was no thought ever no plans and none of us really ever have engaged in front line direct action kind of thing so it wasn't even a thing for us me and some of my friends I think the biggest idea we got is that we wanted to get up there and get behind in, in the background with our signs in the camera so that they would see that we're here and uh, the whole scenario things that played out that day um, where some of us went up and we ended up actually just kind of jumping in the road <laughs> <laughs> um, and we found ourselves in that position, um, and later at the summit, we were actually blocked. They had blocked the road, so we wouldn't be able to get to this to the groundbreaking site. Um, so we just kind of stood in line, and then but the dignitaries, everybody was behind us, so it was a big traffic jam. They called it a blockade, but we were blocked. So. There's a number of different... A lot of these videos you can see on YouTube now too from the 2014 TMT groundbreaking. Um, There's a lot of videos that show the discussions that our mayor at the time was coming out and trying to dialogue with us. The governor was actually also present at that time, but he never got out of the vehicle at all. And we actually held them there for over four and a half hours. Um, And eventually what happened is we... They were... Uh, there's a there was a, a Porta potty up behind us, and people wanted to go to the restroom. I'm like, of course you can go to the bathroom, but we found that they were actually sneaking people past us and bringing cars on and taking them over to the groundbreaking. <laughs> so a bunch of us began to walk, just walk around their below blockade and make our way over, in which case. I was actually struck by one of the ranger vehicles up here. And he actually tried to run me over because um, it was a deliberate... He charged me with his vehicle, stopped short of me, and before I could move, he actually um, accelerated again, in which I ended up having to jump up to get out of the way and end on the hood and continued driving with me for about 50 feet with him with myself oh my on God. the hood and as well as another one of our leaders, Ko'okai Kanuha, that's actually where we met he was kind of walking <laughs> on the side and <laughs> oh, the guy hit me with his car and he like panicked and he jumped on with me onto the car too trying to get this guy to stop because I couldn't jump off the car um, this guy's going some other people up ahead eventually got the car to stop and that's where we got off um, and I just quite upset <laughs> <Understand> <laughs> just kind of s- right? took off and um, found my way up and over the other, the summit of the mountain and kind of crashed the party um, and that video was kind of was pretty much the spark that kind of got it on the much broader community's radar mm-hmm. of this whole thing you know across the whole Pai Aina. and they were they were doing a live broadcast of their groundbreaking and we oh came in and we stopped the whole thing
1: oh.
3: um but that's quite the epic video that mm-hmm. launched the <laughs> consciousness and it was later on from that was October. Of 2014 it's now February of 2015 when the machines were going to be were coming up the mountain um, we were lucky that we got a heavy snow all of a sudden that cut them off and then it was in early March is when um, I got a call like five o'clock in the morning somebody on the mountain a little spy for us told us the machines are coming up the mountain so I I got up here by myself that morning and this is pre-Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm having to make a video and try to upload it. And <laughs> as I'm driving over here and then I get up to the visitor center and they have the road shut down because heavy equipment's moving on the road. And I begin to climb the mountain. And so I climbed up almost to the summit that day and I was sending out videos just pleading with people that we cannot give up. We have to do something. Um Six hours later, when I reached the summit, I guess they'd opened up the road. Machines had already been dropped off on the mountain, and about three other vehicles, um, people came. So um, there was just a small handful of us in the beginning when we went up there. Um, We kind of decided that we were going to hold. You know, we have to be present. We cannot let them move these machines, and there was literally five of us. And... Before we even We thought we were going to go home For a couple days Pat get ready Come up and we'll make a stand Didn't get to happen Because the next morning We already got a call That the machines are moving They were going to start Grading the ground already Mm. So um, I shot back up there again Luckily I had a car This time to take me up (laughs) And uh, We got right I got in there And filmed them And they Already caught them off Right off the bat um, Illegally moving You know By by law in Hawaii Whenever you're going to Do any kind of Earth moving Um, on raw land you need to have an archaeological uh, uh, an archaeologist and a cultural monitor present at the movement of any of these things they had no cultural monitor Mm. and I caught the the, the, um, archaeologist sleeping in the trucks up above so this the oh videos all came out with me just running down there, calling them out. Like, hey, hey, this is not supposed to be moving. You guys are not supposed to be doing any of this right now. Da, 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 da. And they just kind of all stopped working, hiding from the camera. And they packed up and they left. And that was the last time they got to their machines. <laughs> after that, we put that out there. We were on the mountain. And it still was the first couple weeks. So just kind of just doing my own thing. And there's some people following on and, and getting in, and we're just creating it, and then there's more people coming. So I've I've was kind of put into that place of kind of like a leader in the movement, just because I was like the first one, because I was the first one to do it. <laughs> um, but I you know I think it's just been it's been important um, to recognize too, and you know, that this this particular stand was started by us young people.
4: This is really where the movement started on the international Mm -hmm. scene, right? This is when people started saying the word Mauna Kea. This is when we see Jason Momoa with, you know, his no shirt on and his triangle in front of his (laughs) face (laughs) saying, we are Mauna Kea. Probably one of the greatest activations of our people since, God, I don't know, the the fake annexation in 1898 when 30,000 of our kupuna signed annexation petitions Mm -hmm. saying they didn't want to be annexed. The greatest, like, in numbers, people came out I think there were like a thousand people mm. on that mountain protecting it from desecration. And that was huge. It was a huge win. And it stopped construction on that day. It stopped the movement of construction vehicles. And then some of our most committed folks went into almost like a year-long contested case hearing. Mm-hmm. So these are people like Mehana Kihoi, um Case, Koho'okai Kanuha, um, and, and dozens of others who literally gave up a year of their lives to fight a contested case hearing and I could barely get through like watching one day Mm -hmm. of it on on like the live stream so I have a lot of aloha for them and oftentimes we forget to to celebrate that work and the cool thing about this movement is that we are both working outside and inside these institutions of power and decision making at the same time because we've learned a lot since the fight to protect Olave in the 1970s so flash forward to now um we knew that the the state wasn't going to back down, that at this point TMT wasn't going to back down. Um, And we were honestly just waiting. A few years ago, there was a standoff on Maui at the Danny Noi Telescope on Haleakala. And I won't go into great detail about what happened because I wasn't there, Um, but the Danny Noi Telescope is a military telescope, so there's all kinds of other craziness that goes on with that. But a few Hawaiians, a group of Hawaiians went to standoff against folks at that telescope. and people were injured badly. Mm. Like one guy ended up in the hospital with, I think, like traumatic brain injury from the way that the cops handled the situation. Um, And it was really traumatizing for us to watch this. After that happened, maybe about a year or two ago, we started gearing up to prepare for another standoff on Mauna Kea. The state of Hawaii had said both kind of Outdoors and to their own people, that they didn't want to see another standoff like they did on Mauna Kea in 2015, where cops were kissing protesters. Mm. They wanted the cops to behave uh, with more strength, the way they did on Maui. Oh no! Uh, and that was, you know, that was not really comforting for us to hear. Mm. We knew that they had purchased a significant amount of riot gear. We knew that Maui Island police were actually flying to the Big Island to train Big Island police in riot control. We were doing our homework that whole time, but we, we knew at some point there was going to be a call and we we're going to have to go up on Simona. Um, in early June, it became clear and clear. Not June. Early July, late June, it became clear and clear that that call was coming soon. And I don't know, the first, first week, maybe second week of July, we got a call saying that construction vehicles were going to start moving on July 15th. And we got this like... Secret text message saying, if you love Mauna Kea, come meet us at this place in Kona. No other details to be given out until then. Bring warm clothes. Uh, We'll see you soon. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So it was like, okay. Um, And a few of us, we had an idea that we were probably going to be asked to camp. So we packed up all our camping gear. We got on a plane. We arrived in Kona on July 12th in the afternoon we met everyone at this beach park and it was probably one of the most beautiful things i had ever seen. we get there and people start walking into this beach park pavilion and they just keep coming. Mm. I, you know, I expected like 50, 60, 70 people mm. and they just keep coming. And you start seeing people you haven't seen in years. Mm. My cousin walks in, just like, I didn't know you were going to be here. Like, talk about all my relations you're standing in this place full of people who love the same mountain as you who drink the same water as you and all these loved ones from all different parts of your life start to walk in that you never expected would be there um and so we have a meeting and they tell us okay guys we have a plan they're coming on monday this is at this point this is friday evening around sunset we're gonna go camp at puuhuluhulu and I'm, I am look around, I'm like, like there's not, that's a parking lot. What do you mean we're <laughs> going to camp at um, I look around and Kohokai says, okay, we need to get numbers. You know, like we've got maybe 200 people, 250 people there at that meeting. He's like, we need to figure out how many people are ready to go right now. If we go tonight, how many people will we have? And I'm ready for everyone to raise their hand, right? I'm charged. I'm like, we're all here to protect our mountain. He says, like, show your hands if you can go. Like 25 people mm. raised their hands. Um, and it and it was this somber thing because it was clear that everyone wanted to go, right? But there's a part of me that believes that being from a different island made it easier for me to just yeah. say, of course I can go. I got no- nowhere else to be. Like, I, this is my bag. This is everything I have responsibility <laughs> towards for the next week. Um, take me wherever you need me. And so you could almost see the kind of look on Ko'okai's face just kind of get a little sullen. He's like, it's okay. You, if we get 10, we get 10. We get 20, we get 20, we're going. And so about 25, maybe 30 of us travel to Mauna Kea that evening. We wait till it gets dark. It's about 10 p.m. We go to Mauna Kea, or the Mauna Kea access road right across the street at Pu'uhulu Hulu. And Ko'okai says, okay, no one's setting up any tents, no structures Many people slept in their cars. A few of us got in cots, slept under the stars. We got really lucky. There was no rain. Probably for the first two weeks we were on the mountain, Mm. there was no rain. So we wake up on the 13th in the morning. We get a little more of the plan. Ko'akai says we contacted the Royal Order of Kamehameha and they have committed to uh, let us consecrate a Pu'uhonua on these grounds. And so for folks who don't know, a Pu'uhonua is a is a sacred place um easiest the most simplest translation is that it's a place of refuge so if you were um if you were to be killed for committing some kind of crime or maybe someone just had it out for you if you made your way to a pu'honua you could argue your claims to whoever was at that pu'honua and you could be spared uh you cannot you couldn't be killed there right so it's this both this cultural but also political site of refuge um so it was this brilliant move on the part of Ko'okahi to create this this space that would be sacred to all of us and would require our highest and best behavior you know that that couple we always talk about the highest form of conduct if you're going to be in a sacred place if you call a place a of you're basically you're calling it a hey you're calling it a temple a place of worship a place of safety so that really Forced us to rise to the occasion and understand the seriousness of what we were doing, um, but it was also a note to the state of Hawaii and saying if we're if we're going to consecrate this as a puʻuhonua, this is our jurisdiction. Um, you can come in and communicate with us, but you don't run this show here. This is this is our aina. Um, so on the fourteenth, this is Sunday, July fourteenth, we marked the boundaries of the and in Lanakila. Um, offered Oli to kind of cleanse the area and prepare the area to be a Pu Honua. Um, and by that point we maybe had a hundred people. We were slowly kind of growing. People, people who were at that first meeting kind of got their affairs in order, got their camping gear, and that's when we started actually building tents, which was great because I was cold. <laughs> um, and then the rest is all over YouTube. <laughs>
3: Ka moana kailana nei hawaii nawewehea halulu ka honua haumea na kulu e kalani ki e ki e kaumai luna awe ke aloha ole akamali hinni Me ko kama
1: la me kakuhi hewa mai pu, alu mai, me ko mano kalani
4: po Ka
3: imai ala kama
1: That's all we have for you today, relatives. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love you. Stay tuned for the next part of this series out soon. All my relations.